All right, Jeremiah chapter 9. We did not, we failed in the last hour to finish chapter 9 because we were supposed to be right now looking at Jeremiah chapter 10, but that did not occur. Um, well, I mean, we failed. I mean, we, we didn't accomplish it. We didn't make it very far. So we started just, and, and I, I'm trying to get away from doing this, but in this particular case, I, I really have no choice. And the, and the first hour, we really looked at three kind of concepts, really, that kind, of, that kind of really came up. And the first two dealt with how Christians in general deal with sin. I believe that there's like a, a built-in problem within Christianity and how we deal with sin. And the first one really is how we define it. Now, on one hand, we define it correctly theoretically, right? We define sin as any lack of conformity to the holiness of God, whether in thought, word, desire, feelings, or actions. And everyone will say, amen. But in practice... We don't really maintain that definition. And the reason we don't maintain that definition is there's a common teaching within the world of Christianity that we have talked about a lot within this church that has sparked controversy and makes people very upset. And I don't really know why it makes people upset. But the issue is this. Christianity constantly teaches that when you become a Christian, dun, dun, da, da, you now have supernatural power, basically, to stop sinning. So therefore, you're now, practically speaking, a new creature in Christ. The old is gone. Everything is new. You can do it. You've been set free. You can overcome, right? Now, to teach that, you see you can't maintain that definition of sin. Because if you maintain that definition of sin, you're going to realize that before you were a Christian or after a Christian, you still are doing what? Sinning. Again, you know the scriptures I'm going to go to. Love the Lord thy God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. You didn't do it before you were saved. You don't do it after you were saved. Love your neighbor as yourself. You don't do it before you're saved. We have a very difficult time in doing that after we're saved. And then just the, the, the card that just, you play this card and it, res, it should stop all arguments. Be ye holy as he is holy. We never even come close to accomplishing that practically. So the minute you say that, then you're like, well, wait a minute. I thought I'm supposed to have this power. So you see, you start playing little games with how you define sin. So we reduce sin to what? Very external things and the bad things and then the small things, we kind of go, well, you know, I mean, nobody's perfect. We kind of minimize them. And that, that, that is a mishandling of sin. Uh, and there's just no way to get around it. It's a mishandling of sin. But it, it has to be that way to maintain the idea of, hey, if you're a Christian, you will be changed. Okay, well, great. And you're going to define change by, re, by redefining what sin is. Because if you're even remotely honest with yourself, you'd be like, oh, well, I'm in trouble. Yeah, I, 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 I'm, I'm in trouble, right? So I'm, not, I'm not saved, right? So that's the first one. The second thing the church constantly does is we put all of our focus on the sins of the world and not on ourselves. Why? Well, because we have to convince ourselves that we're different, that we've been changed, we've been transformed. We're not like those bad people out there. 
And here is where the good people are, where the religious people are, right? This is a constant thing in the church. So that, that is a major issue. And then the third issue that is a major problem within the Christian world is that within the Christian world, we sometimes cannot see how deceived we are ourselves. We cannot see how deceived we are ourselves. And it's frightening to look back in church history to see how wrong we have been on so many issues within the church. The church has been so wrong. And I, and I ended the last hour with just briefly mentioning, once again, you know, I went to Boston. When I go to Boston, I go to Salem. And every time I leave Salem, I'm three seconds away from becoming an atheist. I can't stand it. I, 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 I loathe. I love the city. I love Salem. I love going there. I could live there if I had to pick a place to live because I just love the place. But it just makes me think, what is so wrong with the world of Christianity? Salem was supposed to, you know, it's the failure of Puritanism. Right? I mean, Puritan, they, Salem was to be the city on the hill. This is what happens if you establish a city with God's word as the rule. This is what happens when God's people is in charge of a city. And what happened was people died because Christians were in charge. Because they lost their ever-living minds. They were so deceived. So I, I did a podcast on it, and I'll just mention it here because it fits some of what we're seeing in Jeremiah, and it's going to fit, and we'll read through the verses we already covered in the first hour. But they used what's known as spectral evidence. Okay, spectral evidence is the evidence of a spirit or a ghost. So how it would work is, say, Eli sitting at home on a Friday night. All of a sudden, Eli falls on the floor. He starts flopping around. I'm being attacked. I'm being pinched. Someone's doing something to me. And Mr. Goodlett, like, what's going on? What's happening? Who's doing this? And he's like, it's Sarah, Sarah Danzler. She's here. She's hurting me, right? And nobody can see Sarah Danzler, right? Because it's supposedly her specter, her spirit, her ghost that's tormenting him. Now, he can call Stephen and go, Stephen, where's your wife? Uh, she's sitting right here. And then he can look at Eli, and Eli's still going, she's here, she's tormenting me. Well, guess what they would do? He would make the claim, and guess who would be arrested? They'd come and get Sarah. What, what could, could Sarah make, what would Sarah's defense be? I didn't do it, I'm not a witch. And they'd be like, Come on, tell us the truth. How are you doing this? Why are you doing this? Why? Why are you attacking Eli? And she'd be like, I didn't do it. No, come on, tell us. And then she would be hung. Spectral evidence. And guess who the people who supported this craziness? Puritan religious leaders. Meaning that they were completely... Deceived. And guess who they were deceived by? From all practical purposes, there's only really three basic theories. Is that the teenage girls who started doing this, one, or just making it up, two, there's some idea that there was a, a fungus in the area that basically is the same kind of thing that goes in LSD. So they spent, you know, uh, 1692 basically on a bad trip. Okay, well, the only problem with that is... Not everyone else, everyone should have been falling around doing that, okay? So, so that, that, that theory doesn't work. Or third, well, there's clearly 
they were actually being tormented by someone's spirit. But of course, they didn't magically how it all stopped. Okay, you know, when, when finally the governor was like, because when basically it kept going until the governor's wife in Boston was accused of being a witch. And then he was like, enough of this. It's over. It stops. It stops now. Isn't that amazing how quickly that could stop everything? Okay, but the, but, the, but the girls were like, you know, they deceived everyone. The religious leaders were deceived by bored teenage girls. Do you know how embarrassing? Cotton Mather and these religious, like, Cotton Mather wrote like 400 books, right? Like, I mean, I, I, you study, like on one hand, you study the Puritans and we're like, they were so godly and religious and theological. And by no means am I saying don't read the Puritans, but you can't read the Puritans and forget what happened in Salem. It was insane. It was crazy. And, and because the whole thing fell, which shows that even God's people can be what? Deceived. And then the question is, how deceived can God's people be? Because if you look in church history, we've been on the wrong side of things a lot. A lot. And that's bad, is it not? But well, no matter how much we're wrong on things, do we ever stop and humble ourselves and apologize? We just move on to the next thing where we say we're right, everyone else is wrong, we condemn everyone, we see everyone else's sin, and we don't see our own. And when you read Jeremiah, it should make you stop and go, man, what is going on? And one of the common thing to do, I, I was listening to sermons this morning on Jeremiah chapter 9, the common things to do in Jeremiah chapter 9 and in a lot of these chapters is to see what the people are, being, are doing wrong and immediately apply it to whom? Well, they apply it to the nation of America and say, this is the problem in America. The only problem with approaching this text this way, just for those who weren't here in the first hour, look at Jeremiah 7.1. Jeremiah 9 is a continuing part of this sermon. Where was the sermon preached at in Jeremiah chapter, the sermon started in Jeremiah chapter 7 verse 1. Where was this sermon preached at? This was preached in front of the temple to those going into the temple. Meaning this was preached to God's people. This wasn't preached to the pagan nations. This was preached to God's people. So if we're going to apply this, what would be the direct correlation? The sins of these people are the sins of God's people. So we would be looking to these sins where? Not in the world, but in the church. I do not know why pastors constantly take this out of context. So chapter 9, it continues. So let's just read briefly, quickly, what we covered in the first hour, and we'll see if we, how far we can get. Everybody ready? Jeremiah 9.1. Oh, that my head were waters, and mine eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Now, there's little nuances here that nobody will ever agree on. Is Jeremiah, has he reached a point where he feels like there's no more tears left because he's now getting frustrated and angry? Or is he saying that I have so much grief, I wish that I physically could cry 24 hours a day, seven days a week? There's lots of different ways of looking at it, but he's wishing for the ability, or he seems to be wishing that he could just cry day and night. Also, he wishes something else in verse 2. 
Oh, that I had in the wilderness a lodging place of wayfaring man, that I might leave my people, go from them, for they be all adulterers, an assembly of treacherous men. He wants to, not only does he seemly wanting to weep, he wants to leave. He wants to get out. Now, once again, is this because he's frustrated? He's tired of the people? Is he wanting to leave because of the way they're treating him? Is he wanting to leave because he doesn't want to be a part of the destruction? Is he wanting to leave them because he's just tired of their sin? Again, we could talk all day, and there would be no agreement on all of those little nuances, right? What we can agree on is there's two things he seems to want. The ability to weep all day and night. We don't know why he wants that ability, and he wants to get out of town, right? We can see that. Then in verse 3, God steps in, and God starts talking. God says they bend their tongues like their bows, bow for lies, but they are not valiant for the truth. Upon the earth, for they proceed from evil to evil, and they know not me, saith the Lord. Now, starting in verse 3, we have this idea that, that because, was going to be repeated numerous times, that the people are basically committed to what? Lies. They're committed to lies. They are committed, they are deceived. They don't stand for truth. And when God's people are on the side of deception and lies, that's a sad place to be. Look at verse 4. Take heed, now this is God still speaking. Uh, take, he, take ye heed every one of his neighbor, and trust ye not in any brother, for every brother will utterly supplant, and every neighbor will walk with slanderers. Simply what God is telling them is what? Can't trust anybody. Now you can't trust whom? This is not about trust, not trusting the world. This is about not trusting, yeah, God's people. You can't trust anybody. They, they have abandoned the truth. They have abandoned lies. Therefore, they, deceive, they, uh, they deal with people in a treacherous, deceitful, slanderous way. What happens in the next verse? Verse 5. And they will deceive everyone his neighbor and will not speak the truth. They have taught their tongue to speak lies and weary themselves to commit iniquity. Once again, what's being emphasized over and over? Lies, deception, lies, deception. There's no, no one is speaking the truth. Again, this is whom? God's people have abandoned the truth. Next verse, what happens in the next verse? Thine habitation is in the midst of deceit. Through deceit, they refuse to know me, saith the Lord. Once again, what is being talked about over and over again? Deceit, lies. This is God's people who so abandoned truth. Therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, behold, I will melt them and try them, for how, sh- for how shall I do for the daughter of my people? What is, what is God seeming to be saying in verse uh, 7? What does he seem to be saying in verse 7? Yes, uh, I'm going to read it from a different translation. Therefore, this is what the Lord of armies says. I am about to refine them and to test them for what else can I do because of my dear people. No, in other words, what he's saying is look how messed up my people are. Yeah, well, he's going to try to purify them. He's, and how is he going to purify them? 
Yeah, he's going to have them go into captivity. In other words, the people are so deceived that his only choice is to try to purify them through some kind of judgment. But once again, it just, it just, I want you to just try to get the picture. Because what preachers love to do with this is say, that's America. America swallowed up in lies. America is, is falling for deception. And look at all these false philosophies in the schools, in the government. We, we've got to do something against it. This is not about America. This is about God's people. That's what I want you to see. So the only correct application would be in how many ways is the church. I, want, I just want to drive this point home. We have to learn to see our own blindness in the church. We have to see our own deception in the church. And what is the one deception you can never see? Self-deception. And is that not the most frightening deception? The, 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 we are always worried about the deception out there, but we can never see the one in here. I, I, in the first hour, I talked about, uh, you know, how, the, how messed up the church is. And so I was looking at all uh, a research paper on how many children are sexually abused inside the church every single year. And we were just looking at just the Southern Baptists, not even talking Catholic. The numbers are shocking. But while, while that is happening, what are Christians focused on? What the world is doing. Well, why are we not so upset about that? Because we can never see our own failure and our own sin. We have to learn to see our own. I, I don't, it's almost impossible to see our own self-deception because you're self-deceived. Isn't that scary? That you can be so self-deceived that you cannot see that you're self-deceived. <laughs> That's horrible. They can't see it. So God's like, okay, well, then I'm going to have to do what? I'm going to have to refine. I'm going to have to find a way to do this. I'm going to melt them. I'm going to try them. Now look at verse 8. Their tongue is an arrow shot out. It speaketh deceit. One speaketh peaceably to his neighbor with his mouth, but in his heart. Faith and wait. What a a picture. Someone walks up to Bobby and is like, hey, everything's good. But inside he's looking for what? I'm going to get you. I'm going to get you. That's God's people. And many people have, have stories of things that's happened to them in the church like that, where you think someone's on your side, and then they hang up the phone, and boom, they go right after you. On the phone, they didn't say that. Or in your face. Once again, demonstrating that we are what? We're sinners. But this is, this is a sad state of affairs. Now, what happens starting in verse 9? Shall I not visit them for these things, saith the Lord? Shall not my soul be avenged on such a nation as this? Now, once again, people, preachers, love that verse. And then they take this verse and they preach a sermon outlining all the sins of America, ignoring the sins of the church. Once again, demonstrating 
that the, the never-ending cycle of self-deceit is still very much found inside the church. We should be looking at ourselves, should we not? Now look at what, verse 10. For the mountains will I take up a weeping and wailing, for the habitations of the wilderness a lamentation, because they are burned up so that none can pass through them, neither can man hear the voice of the cattle, both the fowl of the heavens and the beasts are fled, they are gone. This is picturing the coming judgment, right? And it's picturing it in a dramatic way, that basically what's going to happen? Everything's going to be burned up and all the animals are going to be gone. All right? Now, King James uses a word here that's probably not going to be found in the NIV, but look at verse 11. I will make Jerusalem heaps and a den of, the King James uses the word dragons. Does any of your King James have a little footnote there for dragons? A haunt of jackals. All right, so don't think of a dragon as an actual dragon there. Okay, does that make sense? And I will make the cities of Judah desolate without an inhabitant. Well, the bottom line is here, it may be using poetic figurative language. What's it basically saying? That Jerusalem is just going to become a place for animals because all the people are going to be gone. Right? In other words, the, play, the, the city of God, per se, is now just going to become a habitation for animals because all the people have been drug off. They have been taken into captivity. Right? It's a pretty strong picture. And then look. Look. Uh, I think I think there, it works out something to those lines, possibly. All right. Okay. Then look at verse twelve. Who is the wise man that may understand this? And who is he to whom the mouth of the Lord has spoken that he may declare it? For what the land, for what the land perisheth and is burned up, like the wilderness that none passeth through. And uh, I'm going to read it from a different translation. A different translation states it this way. Who is the person wise enough to understand this? Who has the Lord spoken to that he may explain it? Why is the land destroyed and scorched, scorched like a wilderness so that no one can pass through it? In other words, where, who's, going to be the wi- who's going to be wise enough to understand what just happened? Seemingly to imply that it may happen and the people may not even understand why it happened. So it raises a lot of questions for us sitting in a church. Who is wise enough sitting in a church? Who is wise enough holding a Bible? Who is wise enough who claims to be a Christian to truly understand things as they are and to see things as they really are? You would think that it should be Christians who should never be tricked by what? Conspiracy theories. It should be Christians who are never tricked by hoaxes. Because we should always be committed to what? Truth. Pursuing the truth. We should not be the one buying into false claims and bearing false witness. We should be verifying. And, and why, why should we be the ones who are so worried about verifying and, and making sure something is true and accurate? Why should we be the ones who are more committed to that than any other people group on the earth? Because we're literally commanded by God, speak 
truth. Put away lies. Bear not false witness. In fact, it is Christians who we say we believe because of Christianity that there's what, that what exists. We believe absolute truth exists. But why is it that Christians are not the wise ones who seem to be? We, we're, we, we're, in fact, we're pr- pretty much mocked by the world that we buy into every crazy thing. And, in fact, it's commonly basically approached. Well, Christians, you can't believe anything they say. They already believe in a made-up God, so they believe any made-up lies. What it should be is, hey, Christians, I may not believe in their God, but for some reason, they believe in a God, and it leads them to pursue truth, check truth, verify truth, and they don't bear false witness, and they don't slander, and they don't make up lies. But that's not the way we're perceived. And you have to ask yourself, what has happened? Why do we, where is the, why? And here in, in, in this time, God is basically saying, where's the wise person and up? They've already been told what's going to happen, have they not? And they still don't get it. And they saw what happened to the north. And then what does he go on to say? So he asks, who is the wise man? And And the Lord saith, look at verse 10, or 13, I'm sorry, verse 13. And the Lord saith, because they have forsaken my law, which I've set before them, and have not obeyed my voice, neither walked therein. Now, I wa- I'm just curious. In theory, now, I'm not saying that this works. In theory, in theory, the correlation here seems to be that there are no wise people to understand for what reason? If you take those two verses together, what seems to be the implication why there is no wise man to understand? They have forsaken his law. That seems to be a kind of a logical progression. Now, I wonder. Now, I cannot verify this. This is simply a hypothesis. Do you think, because I feel like it's gotten worse, right? I feel like it's gotten worse within the world of Christianity, right? If I, if I just look at all the years I've been preaching and teaching and podcasts and all the different interaction I've had with people, I mean, I remember way, 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 way back. I remember when I was warning people of, say, Alex Jones, right? I was warning people of Alex Jones, right? Because I knew something was weird was happening because Alex Jones was promoting his material to be shown in small groups and churches and Sunday school classes. And I was like, what lunatic church would ever show anything by Alex Jones? Like, that cannot be happening. But he, he was promoting it, so it had to be happening. So I criticized Alex Jones, and next thing you know, I get all these emails, people losing their minds on me, and I'm like, what Christian would ever believe anything Alex Jones would ever say? Like, how is that even humanly possible? Like, nobody would believe anything the man says, right? It's insane. I remember when Sandy Hook happened, I had Christians telling me, it did not happen. No children died. It's a hoax to take away our guns. And I'm like, how could Christians buy into this stuff? Of course, Alex Jones was the, the lead, one of the leading causes. Of course, he lost his lawsuit, been sued for a billion dollars. But then you turn around, Tucker Carlson of Fox News is the one who then came on and said, Alex Jones was one of the most trustworthy reporters there are in the country. How can that happen? 
How can someone like, like, that's the most insane thing I can ever hear. Like, how is that even possible? But it's okay if the world's doing that. I don't care what Fox News is doing. I don't care what Alex Jones is doing. Let them say whatever they want. Who should not be deceived by any of it? The church should be unmoved. Right? So is it possible? Now, I, I cannot prove this. Is it possible that the church, and QAnon, how in the world have so many Christians been sucked into QAnon conspiracy? Theory? I don't even understand. I warned everyone about the QAnon thing way from the very beginning. Right? I told everyone. Lose their minds. Like Christians losing their minds over the QAnon conspiracy theory. And you just go on from one conspiracy theory to another. It's like it's all Christians seem to be concerned with. Is it possible that that deception indicates an abandonment of God's word. Now, this seems to be implied, right? Hey, where is the wise man? And the Lord said, what's the next word? And the King James. And the Lord saith, because. How does the NIV have it? It is because they have forsaken my law. What is the correlation between the word of God and Christians being so blinded and deceived that there is no wise man who understands? Now, I'm not just putting forth the hypothesis because if you talk to people who buy into QAnon, Alex Jones, or any other lie being put forth by anybody, they will quote scripture. Right? They will say they're following Jesus. But then you listen to them talk and you're like, I, you've lost your ever-living mind. Like, you, like you don't even know where, you, you just, you're looking at them and you're like, I don't know what has happened. Like, they're gone. They're just gone. It's like the, the, the blinders have come down and they think that they're speaking the truth. They think that they're the wise ones. They think that they understand. And you just can't get anywhere with them. There has to be some correlation. Now, remember, quoting scripture doesn't mean one is doing what? It's truly understanding, truly studying, truly pursuing it. In theory, I'm just putting forth in theory, what I would hope is that the more one reads the scriptures, study the scriptures, seek proper methods of interpretation, that it would actually protect you from all of that craziness. But, it, but the church has been so bought into it that it's insane. I mean, they do surveys and ask Christians who go to church questions, and then the world would be like, you people have lost their ever-living minds. Like, they're gone. Like, if I want to find truth, I'd go, I'd go find me a group of atheists. I have a greater chance of finding truth. Now, that's sad. I I don't know. I don't know what. But these people are gone, are they not? But so they have, and look what they did. But they have walked after the, well, the first part, I think, is more important than the Balaam. What's the, the, the NIV? Oh, the stubbornness of their heart. I like the way the King James puts it. They have walked after the imagination 
of their own heart. Now that is what I, I, if you don't write anything down, if you never take notes in church, you should write down that phrase, walk after the imagination of my own heart. You You should put it, personalize it. Walking after the imagination of my own heart. How much, how many times in your life have you walked after the imagination of your own heart? What do you think that means to walk after the imagination of your own heart? What do you think that means? Anybody? Right, it's, it's where you just, you're allowing what to guide you. Now, remember, just think about this, okay? When it, comes to, when it comes to understanding, when it comes to anything, you, you, you only have a couple of things to choose and what's guiding you, right? Right? You are, you are being guided by what's inside of you. That's your heart. That, that now, and, and their terminology Heart encompasses everything, right? It encompasses maybe the mind, the emotions, and everything. But you are literally, you are controlled and driven by what either, how could we put this? You, you are controlled by, let's say, external voices that you buy into and believe, right? Uh, you are controlled by your own desires, emotions, and feelings. Or you're controlled and understand things by God's word. Now, the external has a lot to do with the internal, right? Because if you hear something you like or you believe, then you just go ahead and give that credence as being right and true, right? Because you feel it. So God's law is supposed... One of the reasons God's law... I've always said this. The, the most beautiful thing about God's law is it's where? It's outside of me, which is a good thing, right? Right? And, but what I'm supposed to do is when I pick it up is I'm supposed to forget what? What's inside of me. Because here's the thing. If I am being more guided by the imagination of my own heart, what do I have a tendency to do with God's word? I'm going to read it through the lens of me. And if I ever read it through the lens of me, then I can never see it. Right? Because that, that I have to remove that. But it's very difficult. So I wonder how frequently you, us as Christians, we are literally walking after the imaginations of our own heart while claiming that we're following God. We can't allow our own imaginations, our own feelings, our own desires guide us. We have to allow God's law to guide us. And God's law emphasizes over and over and over Truth above lies. Reality over fiction. Right? God over self. His word over anything. That we do not bear false witness. We do not speak lies. We pursue truth. That like that over and over and over and over. What does God hate? Some of the things that are an abomination to God. What are one of the things that is an abomination to God? Lying lips. It's like the church has abandoned this. But guess what? We don't believe we're speaking lying lips because we are so self-deceived. That that to me, I I want you you see the contrast here? There's no wise man because they've forsaken the law. But instead of the law, what are are they doing? They're walking after the imagination of their own heart. 
after Balaam, which their fathers taught them. They, have, they are following the imaginations of their own heart and what? A false external source. Now, in this case, it's Balaam. It's false worship. I want, you, I want you to get that down. There's two things that, that are going after them. Or th- you can think of it as a three, three-fold problem. They've abandoned God's law. They're following the imagination of their own heart, and then they're following, we'll just call it, a fraudulent external source. In this case, it's Balaam. It's a false god. When, when that happens, you're gone, ladies and gentlemen. It's over. So I wonder if, like in theory, like I'll just go back to the Salem situation because it bothers me so much. I wonder, like on one hand, you want to say they had God's word, they preached it, they taught it. One of the, one of the sermons that was preached on the 24th, 1692, right? By uh, Lawson, I always forget how to say his last name, I don't have it in front of me, it starts with a D. March the 24th, 1692, right there. The trial started in February, so he's right there in the middle. It was, a, they called it a lecture day, where they would bring in someone to give a lecture because they had sermons being preached all the time because it was Salem. It was a, you know, Puritanism, and you better show up to church, I can tell you that, because if you don't, you're probably a witch, okay? That was always an issue. If you missed church, you were done. You, you were going to be a witch, okay? So, but they preached. Now, if you take out, like, there was, uh, there was a, a site that has the sermon and they have the, it labeled by page numbers. You know how many pages that sermon is? 79 pages. Now, I don't know what that sounded like speaking. Don't know what that looked like handwritten, right? Okay, so it's probably obviously less handwritten. I, you know, who knows, right, how it would all work out. But in other words, it was a long lecture. Long. So on one hand, you would be like, well, they had God's word. So how could they get so deceived? How could they start following the imagination of their own heart? But I wonder in what ways can you have God's word without having God's word? Or maybe we should say it this way. I wonder in what ways you can have God's word, but God's word doesn't have you. That's a, that's a good thing. You may want to write that down. When is it that we have God's word, but God's word doesn't have us? There, you, do you understand the distinction between that? Because I can have it. I can read it. I can say I know it. But it never truly has me, because what has me? Imaginations of your own heart and whatever this... Uh, external thing is for us it may not be Balaam for us it could be what I'm going to start offending people political party well self is already the imaginations of your own heart so we already got that so this external thing would be could be a political party could be a religion it could be conspiracy theories it could be it could be a host of other things that we're giving ourselves to now we may try to still attach god's word to it because we have it but the point is it the god's word is not the controlling factor because to me at least my own personal feelings is that anyone who reads god's word would be constantly concerned with what am i speaking the truth am i believing lies am i speaking lies because god 
It's an abomination. Lying lips are an abomination. Am I making, bearing false witness against whomever it may be? A politician, it could be any. Am I getting the story wrong? You think Christians would be like, we're going to get this right because our God cares about truth. But we've lost it. So to me, we have abandoned God's word to some level. Now, if you, if you really think about this, this is just my own take of church history. This is my own take of church history. I'll just start from my own Christian life, right? So starting in the 80s when I become a Christian, by the time, I mean, it was probably already going on in the 80s, but I, I, I didn't quite see it. But as soon as I get into the early 1990s, I start seeing over and over, article after article after article about how we're in a crisis. Biblical illiteracy is an all-time high. Seminary professors were like, these kids come from church, and I, we have to start over. We're in seminary, and we're like, we got to start with Christianity 101. Like, the professors are like... Forget it. Like, why, why am I even trying? Like, I can't. you're in seminary for crying out loud. The expectation is, you know something. Like, I can just start. Like, it, like it's, it's, sometimes as a pastor, you can get frustrated. Could you just like, oh, okay, well, okay, I thought everybody knew that, right? And you have to start over, right? Well, so uh, there was all of these just, we've got a problem. We got a problem. We got a problem. And I used to talk about that problem all the time, right? We got a problem. We got a problem. Biblical illiteracy. And so I was like, we're going to be a church. We're going to do in-depth teaching. We're going to do this. 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 Because I was worried about that problem. That was like, I was taught from very early that the problem in the church is that they had abandoned God's word. Nobody was studying it. Nobody was reading it. Nobody was memorizing it. It was being abandoned even by the church. The church had become a social club for fun, food, and activities. That I wish I could go back to those days. Those were the good old days when everything was good in Christianity, right? Those were the good old days. But I had no idea that that was just the beginning. Because to me, that set the stage. Once you abandon God's law, what's coming? The imaginations of your own heart. What's coming? Balaam. And what I feel what happened is the church moved from left the world of biblical illiteracy and embraced a politically hijacked, conspiracy-driven form of Christianity. And now you're just like, I don't even know what to do anymore. Like, I can't even get to theology because I get got to get through all of your politics and all of your conspiracy theories. Can't even get to theology. Theology is the least of my concerns now. It's now like, how do I get my, how do I get my family out of QAnon? Because you'll hear Christians talk and you're like, they may not know it's QAnon, but like, that's straight up QAnon. Straight up. I don't care if you got it from your favorite news channel. That's straight up QAnon. Well, they don't, they not know. Well, and I wish we could just get back to the days going, guys, man, the church is not supposed to be a social club. We're supposed to study the, now it's like, uh, I, I don't know. It, it feels like this. And just follow that, in that train of thought right here, is it not? Where's the wise man? Verse 12. Why is there no wise man? They have forsaken the law. And instead of, and they forsaken the law, which then what leads to? They walked after the imagination of their own hearts and after Balaam, which their fathers taught them. 
Therefore, verse 15, thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will feed them, even this people, with wormwood and give them water of gall to drink. I will scatter them also among the heathen whom neither they nor their fathers have known, and I will send a sword after them till I have consumed them. Basically, judgment is coming. I mean, it's not good. Now, starting in verse 17. Thus saith the Lord God of hosts, Consider ye and call for the morning women, for they may come, and send for cunning women that they may come. Basically, hey, the, the, remember how sometimes they would pay people to mourn at a funeral? Hey, go get the people. You're going to need some people to mourn for you. All right? Then verse uh, 18, And let them make haste, take up wailing for us, that our eyes may run down with tears and our eyelids gush out with waters. For the voice of wailing is heard out of Zion. How are we spoiled? We are greatly confounded because we have forsaken the land because our dwellings have cast us out. They're going to start wailing, but they're mainly are going to be wailing because they've been thrown out of their, their land. All right. Yet hear the word of the Lord, O ye women, and let your ear receive the word of his mouth and teach your daughters wailing and everyone on her uh, one her neighbor lamentation. In other words, hey, everyone learn how to lament. Everyone learn how to weep. Everyone learn how, because this is how bad the situation is going to be. For death has come upon, come up into our windows and has entered into our palaces to cut off the children from without and the young men from the streets. Speak thus, saith the Lord, even the carcasses of men shall fall as dung upon the open field and as the handful after the harvestmen, and none shall gather them. Basically, the dead bodies are going to be treated as what? Dung, as waste. Nobody's even going to do what? Bury them. That's the judgment that was coming upon. And who was it coming upon? Let me get this right, ladies and gentlemen. God's people. To refine them. This is not a message about America and lost people in America. If this is a message for anyone, it's a message for whom? The church, right? I mean, that's the only correlation. That's the only application. I mean, Israel's still under judgment and still, like, I mean, they still are, are their problems. But I'm saying, if we're going to draw a correlation, I'm not going to draw this into a sermon about, hey, are you upset about America? You need to be weeping about America. Look at your nation. No, you need to be like, look at us. How have we walked after the imagination of Our own hearts. What is the Balaam we're going after? And then it ends in verses 23 to 26. Here we go. Thus saith the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Stop right there. What's the first thing God tells them to do? Those who think they're wise... Stop boasting your own wisdom. Why? Because their own wisdom has only done what? Blinded them. They're blind. Right? They're deceived. What's the next thing he tells them? Don't, don't, don't let the mighty man glory in his might. Nor let the rich man glory in his riches. In other words, stop doing what? Stop focusing. They're already walking after the imaginations of their own heart. When you're walking after the imaginations of your own heart, you can start thinking what? I'm smart. I'm strong. I'm wealthy. Stop seeing yourself from your own perspective. And what does he tell them to do instead? 
but let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me, that I am the Lord which exercise loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, saith the Lord. What they should focus on is not the imaginations of their own heart. What they should focus on is not Balaam. What they should focus on is not their wisdom, their strength, or their wealth. What they should focus on is knowing God. Knowing God. And then how does it end? Behold, verse 25, the days come, saith the Lord, thou will punish all them which are circumcised with the uncircumcised. Now that would not be very nice to them, right? Why would this be shocking to them? Yeah, well, they would be thinking, wait a minute, we're circumcised, why would we be punished with the uncircumcised? Because the uncircumcised are the really bad people. We're the good people. They're dogs. They're the ungodly ones. How could we get punished with them? And what, what do we really? We're in Jeremiah. I want you to see this. From the fall till Jeremiah, what have we seen with God's people over and 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 over again? Sin and failure. And here they are. They're going to be punished with whom? The uncircumcised. And then what happens in verse 26? Egypt and Judah and Edom and the children of Ammon and Moab and all that are in the uttermost corners that dwell in the wilderness. For all these nations are uncircumcised and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in the heart. Now, I love that. They may be uncircumcised Physically, you guys are uncircumcised in the heart. And what do we have a tendency to focus on? Ignore the spiritual state or what's going on internally. And we condemn everyone else for being uncircumcised physically while we walk around uncircumcised in our heart. We are blind and we don't see it. I, I don't know what else to say there. But I, I want you to see that progression, though. Hey, there's no one wise. Why is there no one wise? Okay. They have abandoned the law. In some way, shape, or form, they've abandoned the law. They still have it. They're still going to the temple. They still know it. But it doesn't have them. And then they start doing what? following the imaginations of their own heart. I want you to just write that phrase down. Let that phrase live with you. How are you today walking after the imaginations of your own heart? I know I do it, you do it. We all do it in some way, shape, or form, right? And then they go after Balaam. What is the Balaam you go after? What is the Balaam you're pursuing? What is the Balaam you're listening to? What is the Balaam that is controlling you? That I cannot stress that. And then are you glorifying? Are you focusing in on yourself? Are you focusing in on God? And do you see the uncircumcision of your own heart? 
That should, that should lead us to despair. That should break us before God saying, Lord, I'm the one who's a mess. I'm the one who's in trouble. But for some weird reason, I just don't even understand how pastors can take Jeremiah 9 and make it about us being upset about our, like uh, the, the sermon I heard this morning, it was November, I don't remember, it was after the election and they were like, we should be weeping and we should be broken because they elected this and oh, America's in so much trouble. And, oh, and it was just like, oh my goodness gracious. Like, could you just like stop making it about American politics? This has nothing to do with American politics. That has something to do with God's people who was in a covenant relationship with God who had done what? Abandoned God's word for the imaginations of their own heart and for Balaam and was glorifying and every finding, taking glory in everything other than knowing God. That's the message. And the only direct correlation would be, how does this apply to God's people today? And are we not guilty of the very same thing? We think we're wise when we're not. We think we're mighty when we're not. We think we're rich when we're really not. We don't glorify and focusing on knowing God. We walk after the imaginations of our own heart and we go after our own Balaam. That is, that is the correlation. And any pastor who makes this about us being upset about America is missing the entire point of the book. It's not about that. It's a time for God's people to go, As Judah went, as Israel went, we have done the exact same thing for 2,000 years of church history. We are just as guilty as them because our only hope is never in what we can do. It's only going to be found in what Christ can. But I think there is something there to consider. All right, I'm just going to stop because there's, I I don't know what else to say and I don't want to start chapter 10. So this morning we've accomplished nine. (laughs) That's, That's it. All right. There we go. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this afternoon. Lord, let us see our own flaws, our own failure, and our own sin before we even consider thinking or speaking about anyone else's. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said...